0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Graham Hancock is the author of the nonfiction work's Fingerprints of the God, Keeper of Genesis, Heaven's Mirror, Underworld, and Supernatural. His new book is Entangled. Thank you for joining me, Graham. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Graham, your new novel is a novel, and this is a very interesting choice for you. You've been writing nonfiction for decades now. Talk about. Let's just wind back to the very beginning of your career as a reader, even. What books that you read when you started reading led you down the path to that ultimately led to entangled.
1: Um, it wasn't books. It was uh, it was a series of accidents and events in in my life. I, I I was for quite a while a mainstream journalist. I was the East Africa correspondent for the Economist, and I was based in Nairobi, Kenya. And my travels around the region took me frequently to Ethiopia. At these times I was totally focused on current affairs, but I came across um, an amazing uh, personality, uh, a monk uh, in the grounds of a little chapel in the city of Aksum in northern Ethiopia, who told me absolutely straight-facedly that the Ark of the Covenant was in that chapel behind him. And uh, I, I, I said, really? can I see it? And he said, no, I'm the only person who's allowed to see it. Nobody else goes in. And I I talked a bit more, and I I came to understand that once he'd been appointed as the guardian of the Ark, he would never be allowed again to leave that chapel uh, until his death. And I began to investigate the whole story. And uh, gradually, piece by piece, it became clear that Ethiopia did, in fact, have a reasonable claim uh, to possess the lost Ark of the Covenant. And, And so I was bringing my investigative skills that I'd previously been using for current affairs to an ancient mystery uh, and and to the most uh, extraordinary lost relic of biblical times. And, and, and it was this investigation ultimately it led me to Egypt because if you can't examine the story of the Ark of the Covenant without considering Moses and Moses is reared in the household of the Pharaoh. So I'm in Egypt and I'm in front of the pyramids of Giza and I'm looking at what the archeology span books say and it makes no sense whatsoever to me. I just, I just can't, put, can't put it together that these are the almost the first things that the ancient Egyptians create. We have a, a six million ton monument 481 feet high, 13-acre footprint, uh, perfectly aligned to true north, south, east, and west, and it just seems to come out of nowhere. And I I thought, what an incredible and amazing mystery. And uh, so I was drawn by these events uh, into, the, into the investigations of uh, ancient mysteries. And I spent a long time, best part of 20 years, um, writing books about the possibility of a lost civilization and of a huge forgotten episode in, in human history. That's really the focus was of, of Fingerprints of the Gods, was looking uh, at, at that possibility. Um, And and finally, uh, through until about 2002, I I and my wife, Santa, who's a photographer, spent six years uh, scuba diving uh, Mm -hmm. all around the world, looking for underwater ruins. Because if there was a lost civilization, I would connect it to the end of the last ice age and the 400-foot rise in sea level that took place at that time. And, you know, when we'd finished that investigation, um, I felt that I had gone as far as I could go, that I had walked the walk, um, that I had done the research. I'd put a huge body of work out there, uh, and I was looking around for a different challenge. And I wrote one more nonfiction book, which was called Supernatural, uh, which took me into the investigation of uh, shamanism and altered states of consciousness, and led me to drink uh, the extraordinary uh, shamanistic brew that is used throughout the Amazon jungle called ayahuasca, uh, the vine of souls, which plunged me into a seamlessly convincing parallel world. Uh, and the experiences that I've had with, uh, with, with ayahuasca, I would say, have been quite fundamental uh, in leading me on this next step in a, a long now writing career, uh, which is in the direction of, of fiction. Because I was, um, I, I know this is going to sound very strange, but I was given the, the plot, the central characters, and the essential dilemma of my novel Entangled uh, during a series of ayahuasca sessions uh, in Brazil in 2006.
0: Well, a- actually, that doesn't sound so strange considering your background.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your background and and a little bit about your your take on, on you know archaeology. You, you a lot of what you say runs somewhat counter to what the the general yeah you know, our general notion of history is yeah and so you're kind of an outsider mm. um, archaeologist and, and I wonder if you I'd like you to talk about creating the books that you've created outside the mainstream of yes. archaeology with, without some of the you know, the educational backing, the institutional backing Indeed, of, yeah. of these institutions yeah. and, and talking about with their opposition. Yeah, with their opposition.
1: Um <laughs> I, I I felt it really it was um it was my exposure to the, the, the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia and to the mystery of the pyramids of, of Giza, and to the mystery, for example, of ancient maps that have come down to us. Often they're copies of earlier source maps that have been lost, which actually show the world with incredible accuracy uh, as it appeared at the end of the last ice age. That just convinced me, as I would say a reasonable, open-minded person, that, that, that there were missing pieces of the picture uh, in, in comparison to the story that we're given by mainstream historians and archaeologists. And I thought... Uh, that it would be useful um, if somebody who could bring a certain amount of academic rigor to the inquiry, or at least investigative rigor to the inquiry, were to provide an alternative point of view Mm -hmm. to say, well, look, uh, I think that this history can be interpreted differently. Uh, I understand what you're saying about the facts, but I take the facts a different way from the way you do. I I thought that this would actually be a constructive exercise. And there was a stage in my life when I honestly believed that academics would welcome it. Uh Uh, but (laughs) but, but, uh, But I discovered that I was that that I was terribly, terribly wrong, and that I had stirred up a huge uh, hornet's nest um, by by really suggesting that that uh, academic archaeologists and historians have missed uh, a huge element in the human story that there has been a lost civilization Atlantis by by any other name um, and uh, you know what what I found as the as, as the years went by when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods and published it in 1995 I, I would think I was in a state of total freedom I didn't feel uh, that I needed to take any account of their opinions or points of view, I did need to take account of their knowledge. I, uh, I felt it was very important to master their knowledge and take that into account in my argument. But beyond that, um, I didn't care really what the what the academics uh-huh. thought. Um, but as the, the massive amount of criticism began to flood in after that, uh, and as the friends of the academics in the media also jumped on me. Uh, I began to realize that whether I liked it or not, I did have to care uh, about what they thought. Uh, and that if I did not bulletproof my arguments, what I, I found that often academia works like propaganda. If they can, if they can identify a, a single chink in your armor, they will pry it open and uh, attempt to discredit your entire work as a result of that. And mm. nobody likes having their whole work discredited. So what I found was that as I went further down this road, I was writing, A, longer and longer books, B, with more and more footnotes. So that what, by the time I wrote Underworld in 2002, I'm into a book of, uh, I don't know, 820 pages with 1,500 with footnotes, which weighs, you know, f- about five pounds. <laughs> um, and, and, and the reason that I was doing that was that I was, I, instead of writing offensively as I had done when I wrote fingerprints of the gods I was writing defensively thinking okay well how are they going to come at this argument and try to pull it down I need to protect, protect it with this wall and this wall and this wall um, and and I began to realize that I didn't like that process I, mm-hmm. I, I at the one hand I had to do it if my arguments were to be taken seriously and not to be shot down in flames right at the very beginning mm-hmm. I had to I had to make those arguments academic proof uh, but in so doing I was making my work more and more boring uh, and less and less accessible uh, to the to the general public and besides i don't like being constantly in a in a defensive mode so so that's that was one of the reasons why why i felt very strongly that at, uh, by the time i'd finished underworld that i had that i had completed that journey i hope that there will be others who will take this on mm-hmm. uh, and who have the energy and the enthusiasm to go on fighting the academics because we do need another point of view academic history i've come to realize is part of the mind control apparatus uh, in our society. If you control history, then you also control the future. Um, and I think that part of part of uh, p- personal liberation uh, involves r- realizing that Dr. X and Professor Y actually don't have all the answers. Uh, they may call themselves experts, but they definitely don't have all the answers. And this isn't only true in terms of history or archaeology, but it's also true in terms of medicine, uh, for example. We, t- we shouldn't always listen with blind faith uh, to the opinions uh, of experts. We should be willing to criticize them. And that, for a long time, was my role with history. Well, I mean, in America, we're currently rewriting our own history
0: right now. In Texas, they're taking out all the offensive liberalisms and, and rejiggering history to, to suit their political notions. History so, is power.
1: History yeah. is history is power, and control of history is power. Um, and, and uh, you know, I hope what I've done in my own little corner of the vast field of 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 history is to uh, empower uh, intelligent and curious people to make their own explorations and to realize that there is another side to the story, and indeed there is another story to be to be told. Well, this has also been borne out recently in the Amazon
0: uh, with the um, David Grant's book, *The Lost City of Z* looking at some of the when it's long been considered impossible mm. for there to, to have been any kind of civilization mm. in the jungle it mm. was mm. hostile and impermeable to civilization and now that's been pretty much yeah. revised and rejected
1: absolutely there's, that was one of those prejudices but we now know that there were there were substantial civilizations within the amazon and that they uh, that they had uh, very substantial permanent settled uh, communities uh, and not only that but we're finding stone circles uh, mm-hmm. in the amazon megalithic megalithic circles look like there's a a whole chapter of the human story uh, that's not been told yet at least as far as the western reading public is concerned concerning uh, concerning the amazon and its mysteries in a way the amazon is like an ocean mm-hmm. just as uh, just as the ocean conceals a great deal from us and that's why i spent 6 years diving looking for for underwater ruins uh, so so the amazon um, covering, covering so much so much area, we don't really know what's been happening there in the past, but we do know that there are peoples uh, in the Amazon with, uh, with an astonishing level of knowledge of the properties, for example, of the plants uh, of, of, of the Amazon, and really uh, an astonishing scientific knowledge, which, which, of course, Western culture has drawn on uh, and, and stolen uh, from them. A lot of Western pharmaceutical medicines are, are, are derived from Amazonian plants and trees. And this leads us to your book, Supernatural. Um, talk. Uh, let's
0: talk talk a little bit about Supernatural because I think it's a really interesting premise. You start out with, with the cave paintings, and, yeah, and I think the cave paintings are are a really interesting uh, yeah. example. Uh, of our earliest intimations uh, of
1: religion yeah very very definitely, um, when I started to research uh, supernatural i wasn 't quite sure where I was going to go. I was interested in the in the human story uh, when When did we become human what 's hidden in the six million year period between the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee and the emergence of anatomically modern humans about one hundred and ninety five thousand years ago. Um, But as I got into the investigation, I I found that uh, almost all of that six-million-year period would be what I call six million years of boredom. Um, (laughs) Really, our ancestors weren't doing anything much. They're they're evolving physically. They begin to look more and more like we do today. It's a very slow process. Uh, But for for millions of years, there's no evidence of of any kind of thought taking place. Mm -hmm. Then about two and a half million years ago, you get the first stone tools, um, and these uh, these this particular stone tool tradition called the Alderwan stone tool tradition then sticks without any change, without any lateral thinking, uh, no innovation whatsoever for the next million and a half years. Um, there's, just, there's just nothing alters. So we can say from that that our ancestors are passing down cultural knowledge, but they are also completely unable to think outside the box, and they get locked and frozen into a particular pattern of behavior. And actually, it's not it, even when our ancestors become anatomically modern and have the same brains uh, as we do, And and we can say with some accuracy that that was uh, around 195, 200,000 years ago. Even then their behavior remains dull, unimaginative, no sign of creativity, no symbolism, no sign of any kind of spirituality. Uh, And and so the mystery that finally grabbed me and that I focused on uh, when I wrote Supernatural is that there's a moment somewhere between 40,000 and 30,000 years ago when it seems like a light is uh, switched on in the human brain all around the world. Um, and, and suddenly, we recognize that we are dealing with creatures absolutely like ourselves. Um, and they are the, the sign and the symbol of this is that they are creating, suddenly, out of the blue, the most incredible works of art. That they're going into the deep caves. It's a misconception to imagine that they ever lived in those caves. Those, they lived in, in, in the dwellings, portable dwellings like uh, Native American teepees. This is, this is the kind of thing that, that the Stone Age Europeans lived in, but they didn't live in the caves. They used the caves as sacred spaces. Art galleries. And art galleries, uh, or galleries of sacred art, mm-hmm. because because the sense of the sacred is very profound in these caves. Um, and uh, uh, really, when you go into one of these uh, one of these caves, the, one of these great caves, it's, uh, there's a, there's an immediate uh, sense of contact with another realm. There's something very spooky and and mysterious about them. It's impossible to to resist. And as you go deeper and deeper in, you find that the, these incredible works of art are are painted on the walls and 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 are using the contour. And the texture of the wall to give a sense of the art almost coming through to you from the other side of something. There are many hand prints all over the cave walls. Sometimes the artist applied the hand directly, the paint directly to the palm of their hand and slapped it against the wall. Sometimes they would place their hand against the wall and spit paint around it so that you get a negative impression of a hand. And two things happen there when you see that. One is uh, a sense of intimate contact mm-hmm. with, with, with an ancient person just like you. Mm-hmm. And the other is the eerie sense that that hand is actually pushing through from the other side of the cave wall, as though the cave wall is a membrane that separates you off from another realm. Um, and and um, the mystery was, to me, wh- why did this start? What, what, what happened? What was the change? What was the trick? Because it wasn't just the cave art. Suddenly, our ancestors start burying the dead they start burying them with grave goods, with food, with water. From that, we can reasonably deduce that they believe that some aspect of the individual survived death and, and that consciousness survived death. Um, before that, there's no evidence of, of any kind of uh, sacred burial taking place. Now, how do we know the dating on this? And uh, how do we know
0: that the dating
1: is consistent around the world? The dating is the dating is pretty good. Um, You can um, anything organic, uh, you can you can carbon date, and uh, uh, I'm not saying that carbon dating technology is um, completely foolproof, Mm -hmm. and there are issues about the amount of carbon in the atmosphere at any particular period of history. But um, by and large, it's a pretty accurate method of dating organic materials. Um, And it is possible uh, many of the paints that were used had organic elements in them. Mm -hmm. So you can directly date uh, a paint that's based on charcoal in that way. And there are other techniques that have been developed to quite accurately date mineral-based paints as well. Uh, And it's from these and from artifacts found around and in the caves and associated directly with the images. And sometimes those artifacts might be carved on mammoth ivory, which of course is carbon datable, which uh, reflect the same scenes that you see on the on the cave walls. So so I think we can be pretty secure uh, about the dating. As secure as we can be about uh, anything. It certainly wasn't wasn't an area that I sought to take the academics on mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. I think that they I think they've got the ground pretty solid on that and where they have the ground solid I respect it. Um, so so I, I, I was inclined to accept the dating uh, of the caves. And what we can say is that the, the oldest piece of art to have come down to us from anywhere in the ancient world is 35,000 years old, and it's from Fumani Cave in Italy, and it's in red ochre. And interestingly, what it shows uh, is, um, well, a, a beast man. The technical term for these creatures is therianthropes, and that's from the Greek uh, therion, which means wild beast and Anthropos, which means man. There are many, many such images uh, on the painted caves. Uh, uh, So the oldest piece that we know is an image of one of these supernatural creatures, supernatural in the sense that you don't see them in everyday life. Now, could these have been...
0: And Neanderthals, are are they extinct by then?
1: Well, the the Neanderthal uh, aspect of this story is very interesting because we are learning more and more and more about the uh, Neanderthals. There's long been a prejudice that the Neanderthals were not capable of doing uh, what we did. It doesn't seem that they left cave paintings, but we can't know that they didn't paint their bodies. They may well have painted their bodies, and we don't know that for sure. More and more new evidence is coming out about, ne- about Neanderthals, which, uh, which uh, su- suggests that they were highly superior creatures in, in, in many, many ways. Look, our ancestors, anatomically modern humans, migrated into Europe about 50,000 years ago. Uh, the Neanderthals had already been there for 200,000 years at that point, um, and the evidence suggests that rather than wiping our ancestors out, which they could easily have done because they were masters of that terrain, uh, they seemed to have welcomed us in and looked after us and uh, cared for us and taught us how to 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 live uh, in that in that that realm but um uh, and and for tens of thousands of years our ancestors and, and neanderthals uh, lived side by side now there was long a prejudice that that there was no interbreeding between humans and neanderthals this was the mainstream view for a very long while but now the neanderthal genome has been sequenced uh, we know for sure that 4% of modern human genes are owed to interbreeding with Neanderthals. Indeed, the gene for red hair is a Neanderthal gene. Um, and uh, so, so it's, it's clear that... There's a reason that, that we're all suspicious of those ginger guys, <laughs> huh? I, I guess, I guess, you know, because, because um, uh, our ancestors and Neanderthals lived side by side for, for, for tens of thousands of years, but suddenly around 24,000 years ago, the Neanderthals disappear from the, disappear from the scene and and actually i mean i mean this 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 l- l- leads me on to my novel mm-hmm. uh to entangled in which uh, in which the neanderthals and the mysterious fate of the ne- neanderthals plays uh, quite a significant role now well let's talk
0: about um
1: the other aspect of
0: supernatural is your your experiences with the ayahuasca right so ta- how did you go from the cave paintings to ayahuasca rituals.
1: and Ayahuasca, the vine of souls. Um, I'll have to cut a long story a little bit short, but but what it comes down to is that there is, um, uh, for about 100 years, academics have been studying cave paintings, but it's really only in the last 20 or so years that a thoroughly coherent, well-worked out explanation has come through for what the cave art is really all about. Mm -hmm. It's not about hunting magic. It's not about wishing to possess a particular animal, painting that animal and depicting it pierced by some projectile. For a long time that was the the view. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually once you analyze all of the caves you find that there's no relationship whatsoever between the animals that were eaten around the caves and the animals that are depicted in the caves. And furthermore only 2% of all animal species depicted on the caves are shown as pierced uh, in any kind of way. And often there's something very strange about the way the animals are depicted. And accompanying the depictions of animals are all kinds of geometric patterns and grids and zigzag lines and diamond shapes and flows of dots running down the wall. Um, And these creatures that are part animal, part human in form, are depicted again and again. For example, in the cave of Chauvet uh, in France, 33,000 years old, we have a picture of a, a man with the head of a bison straddling a woman who is depicted naked and headless. However, her right arm is caught in the process of transformation into the head of a lion, clearly not something observed in everyday life. <laughs> and to, not. And, and, and this is where I have to cut the long story short, because the really solid, the really good academic work that's been done in the last 20 years, has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that this art was an art of altered states of consciousness, that we are looking at ancient shamanistic art, and the key element of shamanism all around the world is altered states of consciousness, often induced by the consumption of hallucinogenic plants. Not always. Rhythmic dancing uh, in certain circumstances and other techniques can do the same trick, but uh, uh, I present quite a lot of evidence in Supernatural that, that the agent of the altered state of consciousness in stone age europe was almost certainly the psilocybin uh, mushroom and particularly the psilocybe uh, semilanciata which is the liberty cap mushroom everybody knows it today as the magic mushroom mm-hmm. um, i believe that that was the agent of that shamans used to enter altered states now in an altered state there are certain uh, ver- very recognizable patterns and forms that appear a lot of geometry uh, uh, appears and then there's a sense of passing through a, a vortex into a very convincing uh, parallel world, and this parallel world is often inhabited by intelligent beings who seek to communicate with you in telepathic form. Now, of course, the many mainstream scientists say that this is just our brain on drugs, uh, but very often those scientists have not had these experiences uh, themselves, and I think that it's uh, fundamental before one comments on any kind of experience like this uh, to explore it personally. So I felt if I was going to investigate uh, altered states of, com- of consciousness as the, as the crucial factor behind this great leap forward in the human story uh, thirty or 40,000 years ago, that I needed to experience those altered states of consciousness uh, myself and I looked for current societies which are still practicing shamanism Mm -hmm. and in the Amazon we can find such cultures and in the Amazon more than seventy cultures use uh, this astonishing um, psychedelic brew called ayahuasca and it's a brew of two different plants one of them is um, is a leaf that they call chacruna in the Amazon and it contains dmt dimethyltryptamine which is a which is a schedule one drug uh, in the united states and probably is the most potent hallucinogen known to man more potent than lsd Um, uh, but dmt is not normally active orally Um, if uh, if you wish to experience dmt effects typically you smoke it uh, or or it can be uh, injected Um, But in the Amazon, they found a way to activate it orally. And and, uh, the other thing to point out about about DMT is when smoked, for example, is it produces a very uh, rapid, intense uh, journey uh, experience of other realms, but you're back within 12 or 14 minutes Mm -hmm. with ayahuasca. Uh, The the journey lasts for four hours uh, and allows a rather deeper exploration of the realms that it takes you into. And and, and the way that it's done is that, first of all, the leaf from a plant called Cicotria viridis or chacruna in the Amazon contains DMT. And secondly, the vine, the ayahuasca vine, um, contains another very important chemical element. You see there's an enzyme in our stomachs called monoamine oxidase which switches off DMT on contact. That's why we can't absorb it orally. But in the ayahuasca vine, there is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor which switches off that enzyme in our stomachs and allows the DMT in the leaves to be absorbed orally and and produces this extraordinary journey which all Amazonian cultures believe it's very important for us to go on. From their point of view, whether we like it or not, we are surrounded by the quote-unquote supernatural by the spirit world. It's interacting with us all the time, and we better take account of that. And that's what shamans do. They are, they are those who venture into the spirit world mm-hmm. to negotiate and, and bargain with spirits and to seek, for example, healing remedies for members of the tribe who may, be, who may be ill. They seek the advice of spirits on this. And ayahuasca is used as the vehicle to enter these states. So I went down to the Amazon
0: and I drank ayahuasca. Now, this shallots. is a, a, a two-part drug, as you say. Yeah. And... and Do we know? have any idea how they discovered this
1: combination? Well, what they say, when I asked shamans about this, uh, how did your ancestors find this? Find out, because there's 155,000 different species of plants and Mm. trees in the Amazon, and you need to put these two together out of that vast mass uh, in order to get this extraordinary effect. And I asked them how their ancestors did it. And ancestors, because, again, there is archeological evidence that ayahuasca has been in use for at least 4,000 years uh, in the Amazon, so its use is very, very ancient. And what the shaman said to me is, "Oh, it's quite simple. The spirits told them uh, that this knowledge came to us from the from the spirit world mm-hmm. um, so uh, i i I found it a really intriguing proposition to go and to drink ayahuasca with the shamans, uh, also particularly because they what they all say." Um, is that this isn't simply a matter of plants? That there is an intelligent entity or a being, who lies behind the ayahuasca experience, and and for them this being is always female. Uh, she is Mother Ayahuasca. Uh, she often appears in the form of a serpent. Now, you're, you're a
0: scientist, and so what you the decision you've essentially made here is to experiment on yourself, yes, and, and go down and and join the the ayahuasca ceremony yes and ayahuasca ceremony and um, take the drug and yes. and find the find out what the experience yes. is so you can
1: understand better yes. what what the source of these visions is yes that's right and that's and that's precisely what i did and um and i found that it was a life-changing experience uh, which has which has t- turned a corner in my life in a number mm-hmm. in a number of ways initially it was a research project for me uh, subsequently it has become an element of personal discipline. Um, I believe that, uh, for me at any rate, I'm not wishing to impose this on others, but for me it's important to continue working with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca for me is a school. I'm learning a lot of lessons from, from working with this uh, plant brew and with the intelligent entity uh, who lies behind it. Do you feel it's addictive? Not at all. Uh, quite the contrary. As a matter of fact, um, there's a clinic uh, called Takiwasi in um, Tarapoto in Peru, run by a French doctor called Jacques Mabit, uh, who is using ayahuasca with incredible success to get people off addictions to hard drugs. Mm. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever of any addictive qualities with ayahuasca, but there is absolute firm evidence, which has been, for example, overseen by Harvard Medical School, that ayahuasca is an incredible anti-addictive agent. Mm. And what happens is that, is that uh, people who drink ayahuasca very often have personal revelations about weak points in their own lives things in their own lives that they need to fix that they haven't seen before and during a month where, where they undergo 12 ayahuasca sessions, uh, heroin and cocaine addicts uh, find that they have a personal insight into their addiction and they lose the addiction and they, they emerge from the clinic uh, free of addiction. More than 50% never revert uh, to hard drugs again. Um, and, it's really, and they also don't suffer from withdrawal symptoms. Besides, um, one would never consider getting addicted to ayahuasca <laughs> because, because you really you have to brace yourself to drink mm-hmm. ayahuasca. It's not an easy thing to do. Well, tell uh, us
0: about your first experience doing it.
1: Okay. Well, the uh, the the taste um, is uh, is gruesome or or horrible in the extreme. The liquid is a dark, inky, reddish brew, quite thick. Um, it, the smell is is vile. Even thinking about it makes me makes me shudder. You drink uh, only a, a small quantity, a couple of fluid ounces, um, but uh, as it Passes into your mouth, um, you you realize immediately that you're dealing with something incredibly serious. This, this is a taste. I would say, if you can, if you imagine essence of a pile of old socks, um, some raw sewage, uh, a bit of sulphur, some battery acid, and and you know just a hint of chocolate, then that would that would give you the the the, the shudderingly awful ayahuasca taste. And and then as you swallow it down, and and you, and, and your body just kind of knots up. Uh, the, the, such a horrible taste has gone has gone 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 in down your throat. Um, within fifteen or twenty minutes, other things are happening. You're you're beginning to feel nauseous. You might break out in a sweat. Strange rumblings are coming from your stomach. Um, you're going to have uh, vomiting and uh, diarrhea. It's not for nothing that one of the names of ayahuasca in the Amazon is the purge. Uh, (laughs) And it has powerful purgative (laughs) qualities. And, And these also, now initially it was very hard for me to get used to that. Um,
0: so this happens every time. This isn't something it that... It
1: doesn't you... happen every time, but it happens to most people who drink ayahuasca most of the time. Mm. It's very rare to get through a night uh, without at least some vomiting uh, and usually some diarrhea uh, as, as well. So we have to overcome personal inhibitions. I mean, you know, I, coming from Britain, quite inhibited about bodily functions <laughs> and, and uh, you know, down in the Amazon, having to just suddenly go and get myself behind a tree um, was, uh, you know, pr- 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 pretty alarming, pretty <laughs> (laughs) when other people are there and listening to the sound effects, (laughs) Uh, and, 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 and then you look up and you see this huge spider hanging off the tree and you ask yourself, is the spider a vision, or is it here in this world? Um, very, very very, strange. It was quite hard work to get used to that. But, but the first lesson I learned is uh, that our bodies are the least important part of ourselves, and that what really matters about human beings is our consciousness, this m- majestic, amazing gift that science has never been able to explain of consciousness. Um, and at the level of consciousness, uh, ayahuasca is doing incredible work with you. Um, first and foremost, it's working with you as an individual person. I saw episodes from my past life where I had... uh, By past lives. No, I don't mean a previous lives. I, does, uh, although that do, is also possible. Uh-huh. But I I just mean from my, my personal biography mm-hmm. uh, in this incarnation. Okay. Um, at times when I'd been cruel or unkind to others, and I'd convinced myself that I was correct to do that. That person deserved that angry word. That 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 that, that per- person deserved that, that harsh response. Uh, what ayahuasca showed me was that person didn't deserve that. And I should not have done that. I should have controlled my tongue and not spoken in the way that I did. And it showed me that many times I Caused pain to others, and I found myself weeping at the at, at the at the things that that I had said and done that had hurt others, and and that I had persuaded myself were perfectly okay. And ayahuasca showed me it's not okay. It's not okay at all. You are in control of yourself as an adult human being. You make decisions about how you behave. Take responsibility for it. And, 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 and I began to be taught that lesson very, very firmly by ayahuasca. I, I believe that the entity that lies behind the ayahuasca brew is, is full of love. Uh, it's a loving entity, but it's tough love. Is this and the
0: blue mother that we well, see in the forests? The,
1: this is, uh, the, this is the, the, really the source for the, for the blue angel or the blue lady in my, in my novel, Entangled. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in that, she's, that, that it's tough love and that she's, she's teaching you about yourself. Part of the purgative process is also just getting rid of toxins in the body and getting yeah. rid of psychic toxins that have been messing up and polluting your system. Once you get through all that, you get into visionary space. And in that visionary space, you do meet... Um, entities that are uh, intelligent and interested in you and communicating with you and have stuff to teach you. Uh, And again, I know for anyone who's not worked with ayahuasca, how crazy this must sound. Mm -hmm. I do absolutely understand that. But uh, all I would say is, before judging it as completely crazy, Go have 10 sessions in the Amazon with ayahuasca and see if you still feel the same way. Uh, Because very, very serious individuals, uh, extremely rational and grounded individuals who've worked with ayahuasca have come back and had to admit that uh, they believe that these contacts are real. And in fact, one of the mysteries of ayahuasca is the transpersonal element, that people from many different cultures uh, with no contact with one another, not comparing notes, all see the same things and the same enchanted landscapes and the same beings when they enter uh, ayahuasca space and normally when we all agree on the same perception we accord it the status of reality and perhaps that's what we should be doing with these visionary experiences as well i mean what i'm suggesting is that that the altered state of consciousness uh, retunes the receiver wavelength of the brain and allows us to gain direct access to invisible realms, realms that are normally invisible to our, or not accessible to our senses, but that become accessible in altered states of consciousness. And to make that jump, you have to also consider the possibility that our brains may not simply generate consciousness, but may be um, transceivers uh, of consciousness, uh, that consciousness is more like the the signal uh than 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 the tv set this is some, this is an
0: argument you make in entangled yeah yeah S-
1: uh, let's talk about
0: entangled entangled is not something that you uh thought of uh sitting around your your uh studio in london thinking uh i want to write a uh rip, ripping yarn about uh two girls from different times who come together through a supernatural energy. That's, yes. This is not what happened. No, it's
1: not, it's not what happened. What happened was that after I'd finished the, the nonfiction book, Supernatural, and with all my, my, my history of nonfiction books before that, I, I did make a firm decision that I wanted to see whether I could write fiction and to try my hand at fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that frame of mind, I went down to Brazil in 2006, and I arranged to have five ayahuasca sessions uh, over a period of two weeks. And, and uh, with ayahuasca sessions, it's often uh, indeed always the case that, that uh, you should set an intent for the session before you begin it. What do you particularly want to explore? What mm-hmm. do you want to use the aid of the plants to, to explore? Now, ayahuasca, it's often said, and rightly so, doesn't always give you what you want but mm-hmm. she usually gives you what you need and uh, it, it, but in this case, my intent was to explore the possibility of using my creative and narrative gifts such as they are in a new form to spread my wings and fly in a, in a different direction. And uh, I- Ayahuasca responded with, uh, with incredible vigor to this. I was given the whole story in a series of visions. I'm not saying that I remembered all of it consciously, uh, but certain elements of it were very clear that there would be two Troubled young women, one living 24,000 years ago at the time when the Neanderthals were wiped out. My my female heroine from 24,000 years ago is called Rhea, and she's an anatomically modern human like you and I, but she lives at the time of the last Neanderthals. And the other young woman uh, is uh, Leone, and uh, she is uh, uh, living today in modern Los Angeles uh, in, the, in the 21st century. Why young women? Um, I, I felt very strongly that, that uh, f- from, from those visionary experiences that that's what they had to be. That mm. it had to be, it had to be young women, and and maybe that's because of the of the the female entity that that lies behind uh, ayahuasca, which every uh, am- Amazonian tribe who works with ayahuasca will tell you is absolutely the case that this is a that this is a female uh, supernatural being who who's working through the ayahuasca brew to access uh, human consciousness. Now, um, and 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 the 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 sense of the of the sacred feminine and the sense that the sense that that. Um, that uh, women carry great weight and responsibility on their, on their shoulders and I, and, and I needed to put that across. So it was very, very clear to me from the beginning that this was going to be two young women and that they would be brought together uh, in altered states of consciousness. I was given to understand that time is not at all uh, how we see it, it's not an arrow that goes from the past through the present to the future, um, but that it's a series of cycles and spirals that intersect and cut across one another and that time frames can be interlocked together Now, this is something that you were shown in an ayahuasca vision? Yes, that time would not matter. Once one left the body, uh, once one was out of body, and, and traveling in, in, in a spirit body, as it were, mm-hmm. then, then time and space could both be folded, and that it would be possible to move across time. Yes, I was shown that. And that my two, my two heroines, one today and one in the past, would be in contact with one another. And now,
0: one of the things I think that I find uh, somewhat troubling about the, the, the book mm-hmm. at, at the very beginning, we meet these two clearly powerful uh, female figures, and they are both standing in the shadow of rape. Yeah,
1: they're both standing in the shadow of rape um, and they're both standing in terrible jeopardy mm-hmm. uh, because because both of them uh, are confronting in their lives uh, a demonic force and I call that demon Sulpa uh, in the Stone Age and it's the same demon but he's called Jack in the 21st century world. And what, he's, uh, what he does is he misleads human beings uh, and, and, and takes them down dark paths uh, and leads them into acts of uh, terrible uh, atrocities and, uh, and, and cruelty uh, against one another because every time he can lead human beings to, to commit an act of evil, he gains psychic power. And that psychic power he plans to use by committing a terrible atrocity in the Stone Age to jump forward into the 21st century and to manifest physically Uh, in the 21st century. At Mm -hmm. the beginning of the story, he's not physical. He's like a dark cloud. He's an influence that is affecting people's minds in the 21st century, but he isn't through physically. And what he needs to do to jump physically into and and to to manifest in a a body in the 21st century uh, is to persuade uh, our ancestors, the anatomically modern humans, to exterminate uh, the Neanderthals. And what uh, Ria, Ria's role is, and she's, she's caught up right at the beginning where, where she rescues a young Neanderthal boy <coughs> who's being attacked by members of her own tribe, and then, and then she is, she's is almost raped uh, by those members of her own tribe, and, and only because other Neanderthals come along and rescue her does she get out of that situation. And then suddenly she finds herself with the Neanderthals who her tribe call the Uglies. That's mm-hmm. the name that they give to them. And initially she has prejudices about them, but she begins to learn very rapidly that they're incredible beings.
0: Now, you have an interesting vision of the Neanderthals. It's not like any vision I've ever read
1: before. What led you to create them uh, as you do? Well, this is another extraordinary element of the, of the story. Um, when uh, I began to write the Neanderthals, um, it wasn't that I had seen in detail, at least not at the level of conscious memory in my Mm -hmm. visions, what the Neanderthals were. Um, But it seemed that part of what I received from ayahuasca was, was downloaded unconsciously. And writing the book um, often became a process of defocusing rather than focusing in the way that I do when I'm writing nonfiction. And, and, and when I allowed that to happen, I found myself attaching certain characteristics to the, to the Neanderthals. And weirdly, this is a very weird thing, and I honestly can't explain it, but, but while I was writing, for example, it came to me that the Neanderthals had red hair. And I describe my Neanderthals uh, in the very first chapters of of Entangled, uh, written in 2006, as having red hair. Uh, it wasn't until this year, 2010, that science confirmed that the Neanderthals were, in fact, red hair. And as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the, the gene for red hair in modern human populations is owed uh, to, to Neanderthals. Um, I, found, I found myself depicting the Neanderthals as compassionate and filled with love mm-hmm. um, uh, and, 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 and care for one another uh, and, and care for other species, too. Uh, and again, this were, at the time that I was writing it, this went totally against the grain of the mainstream scientific view of the neanderthals i mean we, you know we use the word neanderthal in our culture to mean a kind of thuggish ignorant uh lout, lout. yeah um that th- th- that's how that's how abused the notion of the neanderthals has become but you know as we're talking uh, today in, in october uh, 2010 Um, there's a whole mass of new research, anybody can find it out there on the internet, which is proving that the Neanderthals were actually incredibly compassionate beings. They're finding remains of Neanderthals who'd lost an arm, lost a leg, even been blind, and who had been supported and nurtured and cared for through into old age by their, com- by their community. This tells us that they were, they were compassionate. So uh, it's it, strange though it sounds. Uh, it, 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 it feels like I downloaded truth about the Neanderthals mm-hmm. and, and ended up uh, putting it into my work. I didn't derive it from the science. The science came along uh, later. It's a mysterious process to me, and I can't fully explain it. So this is a, a pretty interesting work of imagination. It's
0: also, uh, you know, in terms of reading, it's it's a ripping yarn. It's a very interesting combination because on one hand you have a very classic and fairly straightforward simple story. Mm-hmm. We have two uh, characters in different times and they're being pursued in various ways by the same being who exists outside of time. Correct. And you go back and forth between the chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about creating your
1: fiction writing style out of your non-fiction writing style. mm. Well, uh, what a liberation! What freedom! Yeah, should you come into my office uh, any time in the last few years when I've been writing nonfiction, and you will find that the whole floor and all the desk space in my office strewn with open books, with little yellow tags stuck here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm I know what that's desperately like. yeah. I'm you know. I, I, one thing I learned is when you do footnotes, my goodness, if you don't do the footnote at the very moment that you have it, you'll never find it again. Mm. You know. So I became obsessional about that, and it's a constant work of fact-grinding. And I do a lot of quotation in my non-fiction, um, so so maybe you know tw- twenty or thirty percent of everything that I wrote down is actually quoted from other sources. Because what, one of the aspects of my non-fiction, which I would be the first to admit, is that it's a work of synthesis. Mm-hmm. I'm synthesizing material from a whole broad range of research uh, and trying to give a new take on it and show where it might might lead us. And that's uh, the, I think exactly what
0: you're doing in your fiction as
1: well. Well, with a lot more freedom. Right? With a lot more freedom. Uh, first of all. Uh, writing fiction frees me from the need to bulletproof my arguments against Mm -hmm. the academics. I can work with all kinds of extraordinary ideas and I can express them through fiction, but I need not fear that, uh, you know, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal is going to attack me Mm -hmm. for trying to pass it off as fact. And if they do, I can say, you know, hey guys, relax, it's just fantasy. Mm -hmm. This is uh, the ultimate defense uh, against all of that. I can just forget about them. Um, And uh, secondly, I'm not grinding facts anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working from the, re- the realm of imagination. And the realm of imagination and the realm of vision uh, intersect uh, enormously. I would go so far as to say that imagination is another human sense, like eyesight and taste and touch. Uh, imagination is part of the way we understand the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a great freedom. Uh, to work with imagination. Well, the perception of reality is in itself a, a form of imagination. A form of imagination, the, the kind of lucid dream, you mm-hmm. know, that we're, that, we're living, that we're living through. Um, so so it, it's a very liberating experience for me. Uh, but what I did find um, is that the writing process, oddly, was quite slow with fiction. Uh, slower by far than it was with non-fiction. Mm. Um, and again, I, the way I, I've come to understand this, that it has something to do with the mysterious process whereby I was given this inspiration in the first place. Um, at times, my intellect would force itself on the story I was writing, and I would type away, and I would get down three, four, five pages, and I would begin to feel more and more heavy and leaden that, that, that something was wrong. Uh, and finally, I'd grind to a halt, and I would sit the whole day puzzling over a single sentence, trying to get it just so. And that's when I knew that I'd taken a wrong turning. And so I, then I'd back up to the point where I forked off from the true flow of the story, uh, and, and let the imaginal and the visionary realm take over again. And... Redirect and start writing again, and the writing would then begin to flow. I had to go back to the point where I'd gone wrong, scrub all that material, and uh, and 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 start again. Um, it was um, it was an in, ultimately an enormously uh, creatively uh, fulfilling uh, experience. And I, I should add that this is another aspect uh, of ayahuasca. Um, for example, there are quite a number of artists in in America today. Um, who uh, openly acknowledge that, that ayahuasca has been an incredible source of inspiration to them mm-hmm. and has transformed their art. For example, uh, Alex Gray from the Chapel of the Sacred Mirrors up in New York, and uh, Robert Venosa and Martina Hoffman uh, in Boulder, uh, Colorado. Uh, their in- incredible, amazing works of art um, are, uh, many of them, uh, in- inspired by ayahuasca visions. And, 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 and you can see the enchanted, Universe that they are that they are depicting. Um, it's like n- not nothing that you could 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 imagine from this material, physical, rooted and grounded world. And it's incredibly liberating to look at. I know of geneticists who've gone down to the Amazon and drunk ayahuasca, and have had stunning insights uh, into their area of science. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a geneticist, and I'm not an artist. My medium is words, and and, and ayahuasca seems to have given me uh, a, a creative boost uh, in, an, in a new direction and allowed me to find capacities in myself that I wasn't previously sure were there. And I'm very, very grateful uh, to to, to Ayahuasca for that.
0: (laughs) Now, when you're working in fiction, though, you're also working in a literary tradition. And and there are people who have written books about this stuff before you, and they will come after you. So I'm wondering how much of the literature of the fantastic you... Looked into before you set out to even just to document this, or as you say, document this Ayahuasca vision.
1: Yeah. Because
0: I mean, when you're working in the realm of fantasy, there's yeah. lots of people running. I mean, I'm a lot of what you tell me uh, makes me think of uh, Robert Holdstock, who mm-hmm. wrote a series of uh, books set in what he called Mythago Wood, where it was right. an ancient wood in behind a in a, a state in mm. uh, the UK where mm. the 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 roots of the myths arose and enacted right. out.
1: Right. I, I I don't know his work. Ah, uh, would um, highly recommend. Pro- probably, that I sh- probably I should. Probably I should. As a matter of fact, I hadn't read a lot of fantasy mm-hmm. uh, or fantasy adventure um, before uh, writing uh, in Entangled. Mm-hmm. Um, all I knew was that that uh, and 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 I still insist on this that the first uh, responsibility of the fiction writer. Uh, is not to bore their readers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that's first and foremost. Anything else can come second. All kinds of ideas you may express in your work, but let it not become a a boring uh, didactic uh, presentation of facts. It has to be a story, it has to be a compelling story. You must identify with the central characters. You must care what happens to the central characters. Mm -hmm. You must feel their jeopardy uh, and be drawn through the story with that. And I was just, from the very beginning, I was extremely conscious of that. I can't honestly say that I drew that from reading any particular book book it's just something that i know for sure is right of course i had read some fantasy for example i mean who's not read lord of the rings mm-hmm. you know the, the that 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 incredible uh, work of, of fantasy and uh, and and adventure but a lot inspired of inspired not by ayahuasca but world war 1 well yes <laughs> <So>, curious curi- <laughs> curi- <laughs> thing but, but but again you know i think i think jrr Tolkien in his own way was, was one who, who did know how to make the veil between worlds thin and oh. to Well there's no uh, doubt about and, that. And to move into move into other realms. It doesn't always have to be I was I, you know, I needed help, and I got no. that help from ayahuasca. But some some great writers don't need that don't need, don't need that help for their for their for their inspiration. But what I can say is, it's um, it's set me on a on a new track, um, and uh, I I feel that uh, my future path is going to be in writing fiction. And 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 um, while yeah, I, while a- I want to continue to express extraordinary mm-hmm. ideas uh, in 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 my fiction, uh, I, I I also um, hope um, to to learn more and more about the craft mm. uh, of, of writing fiction and part of that it's very important to read uh, to read other other authors and although Stephen King you know might not be regarded as a fantasy author although he often oh, moves he in that is. direction he rightly should be um, and uh, what, what an amazing storyteller how, how brilliantly his stories are crafted how compelling they are how mm-hmm. they how they how they draw you through I, I would sit at the feet of masters like this and learn everything they've got to teach me now one of the things I think this is the first book in a trilogy? Well, it's going to be a, 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 a duology. It's <laughs> going so to be two be two, 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 vo- two, volumes,
0: yeah. two volumes, yeah. 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 Uh, so you uh, sent, when you had your vision, did you know the whole beginning and end of the story
1: or is this no. something that you're exploring as you write? It is definitely something that I'm exploring as I write. Yeah. Uh, part of it part of it is clear to me. Mm-hmm. The 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 central characters, the central dilemma the time travel, which is not done in a time machine but mm-hmm. through altered states of consciousness. Although the first time time travel contact or the first contact with other realms that my modern character Leone has actually is in a near death experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, she overdoses on Oxycontin and and dies and and is brought back to life. But she has a near death experience which is her first encounter with the supernatural being who I call the the blue angel um, who is doing seeking to stop this demon uh, doing the harm that he wants to do to the human race. But the Blue Angel cannot intervene directly in the material realm. The only way that this force of supernatural goodness can intervene is through influencing human behavior. And that's why she selects these two young women living 24,000 years apart to deal with this demon who is um, moving through time. Now, could you
0: talk about—you create two interesting human characters in various times and the characters around them. Talk about creating supernatural characters because— You've experienced them in an ayahuasca vision.
1: Absolutely, um, and I think this was very helpful to me um, in creating the character uh, of the blue angel, and and also, uh, oddly enough, the demonic character too, mm-hmm. uh, because one of the things that happens when when you open the door uh, to the supernatural. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that happens is that you enter a realm where both evil and good do exist. There mm-hmm. are not, uh, on, on, on the other side, in, the, in, the, in what the shamans would call the spirit world and what quantum physicists might, might call parallel universes, at the other side, there are entities who are harmful and negative as well as entities who are positive and well-meaning.
0: That sounds just like here.
1: <laughs> yeah it's I would say that it is just like here uh-huh. uh, and and uh, but, but I would go further and say that these problems and issues in our realm in our world uh, today will never be fully understood unless we get to grips with their spiritual roots and their spiritual connections. Um, we, we will not solve the problems if we seek to deal only in this realm with those problems. We have to look into the deeper background to where these, where these problems come. And I, and I do see huge spiritual forces uh, at, at, at work in history, some negative, some positive. It's not an accident that many, many cultures have the notion of angels and of demons. Um, so. So the experiences that I've had with ayahuasca, uh, although by and large uh, extremely positive and, and involving several uh, direct encounters with the with the entity that is known as Mother Ayahuasca, uh, in one case in the form of a serpent, she wrapped herself around my entire body and laid this huge head on my shoulder and just looked into my eyes for two hours. And And I was at a low point in my life when I had that experience, and I was Feeling some self-hatred and 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 feeling very negative about myself, and really, what was being sent to me at that time was: you don't have to feel that way. If you have to, you have to learn to love yourself before you can be constructive and positive uh, t- towards others. And it, so it was a very reassuring and loving, and uh, positive message that I received there. Um, and and I think these encounters uh, really shaped the character of the Blue Angel mm-hmm. uh, in Entangled. She is she is Mother Ayahuasca, and and I do actually say that at some at, at one point in the book mm-hmm. that that's that that's who she is but the sense of the demonic um, i have i have seen people uh, possessed by by w- for any other word we have to call demonic forces um, that have got in through that door when the door is opened uh, even by ayahuasca um, and and uh, I have some sense of that as well uh, and I was able to express that I think more easily in the novel because I have Seen that too, Uh, and one other uh, thing—a vision that I had with uh, with ayahuasca uh, in the Um, Amazon—I was shown something very strange. I was showing the serpent, shown the serpent form of ayahuasca, but broken, Uh, and I was shown our planet glowing with light, but a great darkness closing in on it—a great darkness closing in on it—and. I spoke to Mother Ayahuasca about this, and first of all asked why was she broken? How can the how can you be damaged in this way? You're a supernatural being; nothing can hurt you. Um, and 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 uh, her, her reply was that this thing can hurt me. And I, I said, how do we stop it? She said, I can't stop it. It's you, you human beings, who have to stop it. You know, ayahuasca visions are often cryptic and deeply symbolic and it's difficult sometimes to work out exactly what's going on, but there was a there was a clear message there and that message is part uh, of the story of Entangled too. I've been speaking
0: with Graham Hancock. His new novel is Entangled. Thank you for joining me, Graham.
1: Thank you. It's been great.